week of October 15th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 635, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in New York City, I'm Michael Giltz. I'm in New York. Congratulations. Yes, yes. It's nice to be back, briefly. I'm here to see Merrily We Roll Along. At, uh, on Broadway with Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe about a ticket many months ago. So here I am to see the show. I think I'm seeing it uh, in about a week and a half or two weeks. Well, wouldn't you know? I, I, I am seeing it. I just can't remember if it's, uh, I think it's the uh, Sunday, October 30th. So if you're there so you say, just, and you see us, say you, hi. <laughs> you decided to come to New York when I wasn't here. Yes. I said, when, when is Michael there? Okay, I have to make sure to come Let's right after. Book differently, yes. yes. Yeah. No, I'm there. I'm there for my daughter's uh, parents' weekend over at Fordham University. Very cool. Um, is there a show next week? Actually, I'm so glad you asked that question because you did not ask me ahead of my pressing record, and I will actually be moderating a panel at Show East in Miami. So if you're in at Show East in Miami, come and say hello. But unfortunately, I won't be able to record next week. Because they have no Wi-Fi in Miami. Not many people know that, but they're sort of technologically backwards in South Florida, and there's no Wi-Fi, so we couldn't record the show. Well, also, uh, I will be uh, preoccupied by... Uh, working. working? Should we put that in quotes? Yes, uh, working, yes, so air quotes. Mm -hmm. So you don't have time for your hobby. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> well i'm in new york i've checked out a couple things i went to the little island the public park built by barry diller that is just off the piers uh like in the about 12th street uh on the on the west side of manhattan uh which is cool there's two performance spaces it's all outdoors it's basically a park but it's up high on on pillars and it's you just walk up a thing and then you're on this little island in the you know, right off the water and uh, very windy when I was there, but uh, very cool, very fun, nice little park. And then I went to the beach. There's a new beach at about 10th Street, uh, right across from the Whitney. There is a public beach on the pier, an artificial beach that they built next to a gorgeous soccer field that is not being used every minute of the day, which is a shock. You'd think there'd be people lined up to play on that, uh, but that was very lovely. And then I went to the Whitney. Uh, I went to see uh, an exhibit. I went to see the, uh, an exhibit devoted to Harry Smith. It's called Fragments of a Forgotten, I'm sorry, Fragments of a Faith Forgotten, The Art of Harry Smith. It's running through January. Harry Smith is best known as an archivist, a musicologist, the guy who put together the anthology of American folk music. This two album and then later expanded further collection of Americana that really helped change uh, people's attitudes towards American music and what was American music, along with the Lomax Field recordings, Harry Smith and his archival work. He didn't go out and record people, but he collected all this old stuff and helped preserve it with this box set that said, this is important, you should hear this. It really had a big impact on Bob Dylan and all sorts of artists who listened to it. And he apparently was a drunk and a drug addict and he's half homeless on the streets all the time and 
crazy and nutty and he would do little short films and animated cutout things and he would do paintings and they would lose the paintings but there'd be a slide of the painting so you could see what it looked like. Uh, he would collected stuff and then he'd be kicked out and he'd be on the streets and he'd have to sell his stuff in order to get in somewhere else. Just a crazy mess of a person. And But there's, I think at the Getty, they have an archive of all of his material. It might be the Getty. And the people who were the keepers of the flame said, he's an important artist. And they mounted this show and they put it in New York to say, no, 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 all of this different work, the paintings, the, the doodads, the this and that and the other thing, it all adds up to a vision. I'm not sure. Um, but they do have some cool stuff from the anthology and you can listen to that stuff. And there are some cool images. There are a couple of times where he seemed to be on the right track, but he was a very scatterbrained person. Things were all over the place. He'd try this and then he'd do that. And then he'd do the other thing. None of it quite came together, but as often happens, I went to the Whitney to see that exhibit, but I ended up loving another exhibit. It's Henry Taylor B-Side, a terrific American artist. Uh, whatever you do, if you can get to the Whitney, go check out his work. Really powerful very funny a lot of a lot of ironic subtle humor mixed into his stuff and dylan pops into his piece as well so the henry taylor stuff portraits of his family and friends he does everything he does paintings on matchboxes and cereal boxes and also large classic portraits of family and friends and other artists that he admires and he does covers of other artists meaning they have a painting and he covers that painting but with a spin or a twist on it uh really really cool stuff an amazing showstopper of a sculpture which is like a palm, a tree trunk, and on top, it's huge in the middle of the room, and on top is what looks like African-American hair, Afro hair, the hair that you would link with uh, people of color, and you just go, wow, that's striking. It's like this huge tree with a huge, like, what's going on there? Fascinating stuff. Uh, some very dark stuff. Another great showstopper is devoted to the Black Panthers. Uh, really cool sort of sculptural exhibit that he did there. So a really multi-talented artist I'd never heard of. So, you know, Harry Smith is cool. Go check that out. But Henry Taylor B-Side, that's playing through the end of January uh, of 2024. Well worth your time if you can come to New York. And next week, I'll tell you what I think of Merrily We Roll Along. Well, uh, I had no idea you were going to go on, uh, on uh, you know, take us to the museum. But uh, yes, well, I, I well, no, I want I wanted to share it. It's cool, you know. You come to New York, you see cool stuff. An island that they built by hand, a new beach on the piers, a cool exhibit at the Whitney. I went to a, a Taiwanese tea shop and had tea with mooncakes. It's been a lovely time. That's New York for. And then I'm on the subway. There's people transitioning right on the subway while you're watching. Practically, you're like, this is New York. I'm not in Birmingham, Alabama anymore. I'm home. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you the little island is, uh, it's a lot of fun. I don't think it's called the little, I think it's called it's the called little, little island. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, right by the Whitney as well, by the way. Indeed it is. Yes. Uh, but that's what I'm doing in New York this week. What are we going to talk about on the show? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, as you mentioned, Michael, we are coast to coast, New York and LA. Uh, and that's thanks to you, you being there for this brief sojourn in New York City. But that isn't stopping us, uh, by the way, you're being there from covering all the news that's fit to podcast. We've got Taylor Swift knocking down records left and right. And we, we mean her records. They're on vinyl now and they cost a fortune. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've We've also got all sorts of news on the Hollywood strikes, although I guess now it's Hollywood strike, which, uh, by the way, that strike is not ending anytime soon. And we'll discuss the Hollywood reporters look at the big issues Hollywood must face after making a deal with the actors. That is, you know, they have to kind of 
first mm-hmm. get back. I feel production. like there's there's still fallout from the DGA and WGA strike. So that's why there's still news coming in about the DGA trying to put on a brave face, the WGA and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that's why I feel like there's still news about all of them, even if some of them have been resolved. Yeah. Well, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at two movie franchises. Gerard Butler, remember him? He insists his action franchise launched uh, by the first film, Olympus Has Fallen, uh, is a huge success. So show him the money. And Universal insists the Exorcist franchise is worth more than $400 million. So who's right? Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And you may not have seen the email that, that I sent you from a- AMC. I did. I did. Okay. Indeed. You mean the latest update on, on, the, on the gross? Yes, the, the, the gross. I don't even have to tell you what film it is. That's how... That's right. Yeah. We're looking at box office from around the world. We have a link to Comscore in our show notes. I am wearing head-canceling headphones, and they're really messing with my mind. I haven't had them on in a while, but that's from The Blacklist. My friend Zoe, I'm staying with her here in New York, and she has The Blacklist branded headphones that they gave out as a gift one year, I guess. So here I am with brand new Blacklist headphones, so I may be black. Blacklist number 75 or something, but we're giving you the You're talking about the, the NBC show, the, the television series. That's right, starring James Spader, which just recently came to an end. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's been a big hit on streaming, just like Suits, and we'll get to that later. So I am talking in this bubble, and the number one film around the world is, of course, Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. It made an adjusted gross of $125 million worldwide. That makes it worldwide the second biggest film of all time behind Michael Jackson's uh, hit, Michael Jackson, This Is It, uh, which grossed $261 million worldwide. However, here in North America, it opened to $93 million. It almost beat the the movie Joker as the biggest October opening of all times. And we don't normally break down into animated films made for adults or musical comedies with drama. You know, we, we don't like that. You know, just movies versus movies. But hey, this is a concert film and this is such rare air that she's breathing immediately on opening weekend became the highest grossing concert film of all time in North America. It beats Michael Jackson's 72 million and it beats uh, Justin Bieber's 73 million who just edged out Michael. So uh, $93 million on its opening weekend. Will there be repeat business? There are still more countries for this movie to open up into. So the story's not over. I would have expected maybe it would fall off a cliff. 60, 70, 80%. But these fans might be going back for another round next week, and there are more countries to come. What do you think? Uh, well, you got Brazil, where she's actually mm-hmm. going to be appearing. Uh, I think she starts in Brazil in November. Uh, and you have South Korea, I believe, so, and many other uh, countries, Hong Kong, uh, which I know is a territory, not a country. Uh, but I think that if they could turn it into an event, uh, which they have. They have successfully done that. Duh. I mean, and there's no weeknight screenings. They're not showing it Monday and Tuesday. No. Or even, right? They're like, no, this is, you want to see this on the weekend and have fun. So don't yeah. bother. Don't have it playing all day, every day. There's no reason. Well, my daughter works at a, uh, at a movie theater now. And she ah. uh, brought home a video last night of all these kids up by the screen dancing around and singing with the with the movie. And uh, she said she just looked at me. She's like, I hate that. 
I said, well, what, what are you talking about? They look like they're having so much fun, all those little kids. She said, do you know how much popcorn I had to clean up after that? <laughs> those kids are a nightmare. Uh, so yeah, the exhibitors were like, take out your cell phones, dance, buy some merchandise. This is not your normal movie. Go crazy. Right, which they really do need to do. Now, I wonder if that's part of the reason why uh, AMC and Taylor Swift uh, decided, you know, we need to go international with this because people are going to be, you know, videotaping portions of it. With no, their cell no. They want to go international because the sooner the better. It's going to be out and pirated. So you want to have it worldwide. Yeah. The whole world wants to see it. Why would you wait? It's not because they're worried about a fan holding up a phone for three hours. Now, yeah. it, the, the debut was, you were said the week, the day it was happening, was that Wednesday night? Wednesday night. There were night. helicopters hovering over your house, and it was just no. craziness. That was, that was at the Grove, right? That was at the Grove, and uh, again, I'm assuming my, my invitation got lost in the mail. Apparently, by the way, Michael, what you need mm-hmm. to do, because Matt Bellany, who I, I, I really like his stuff, uh, he was invited, uh, and, and AMC... Uh, of course, was throwing this. Uh, Matt Bellany called Adam Aaron, the head of AMC, uh, Hollywood's biggest villain in 2021. He called he called the head of AMC. So what do you do? You get invited to the big premiere. <laughs> Have you ever called Adam Aaron the biggest villain? No, in but Hollywood? apparently I should start. Apparently that's what I really need to do. <laughs> now AMC, of course, has no big theaters that are good for a premiere. You know, they don't have the equivalent to uh, the Ziegfeld, like used to be in New York or whatever. Uh, they just have mall locations, don't they? And so they have people in 13 different screens, right? Yes. And she went from room to room to room. So it's like, that's sort of a sign of the world we live in. You don't have those big palaces anymore so easily. Those are mostly indies, aren't they? Well, here's the thing. Uh, y- well, yes, I guess you could say uh, Regal has one that's really big downtown LA, but it's in downtown LA. It's a one screener? It's uh, Yeah, it's got a big giant screen, which which they built specifically for premieres, they only forgot uh, one thing. It's in downtown mm-hmm. LA, so nobody <laughs> wants to go there. Uh, but then, yeah, a lot of the independents, uh, you know, there's the Village in Los Angeles, uh, there's the the Chinese Theater. Uh, but AMC ain't gonna have a movie there. <laughs> right, exactly. Why would you be a movie theater operator and then have your movie premiere in, an, in a theater that you didn't own and operate? Yeah, that would be crazy. So it's, it's really... Uh, a record-breaking, stunning, I mean, we're going to easily get used to this, especially after Michael Jackson and Justin Bieber and the big numbers. Uh, But to put it in perspective, Stop Making Sense, one of the great concert films of all time, it's made more money in its reissue than it did the first time around. It's now at $9.8 million, and that makes it the 20th highest-grossing concert film of all time. Mm, Okay. So... You know, and that's great. That's amazing. People don't go to concert films and theaters like that. So that's really cool. But that tells you how high up something like this is, how crazy that is. I mean, that is just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. It's a, I, I, I know that people are very disappointed uh, while well, they, they're, oh, you know, it was supposed to make $125 million. It, oh, no, please. I'm like, that's you know ridiculous. what? It made, I'm sorry. You thought that you'd maybe have a film out this week that made $20 million. Well, I'm sorry. We had a film that made $92 million domestically. (laughs) You know, maybe we can do better next time. 
<laughs> All right. Well, back to the box office. On top is Taylor Swift. And the big question is, will people go back for a second viewing next weekend? Uh, maybe they will. Uh, that's at $125 million worldwide. No matter how much it drops, this is a monster success. At number two is The Exorcist Believer, another $40 million this week. It's at $85 million worldwide. Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Is that that's the name of the new movie? Yes. The first one was called Paw Patrol, the movie? I forget what the original was called. You were asking well, this the one, wrong demographic. <laughs> I'll yeah, tell you that much. This one, is, this one is tearing it up as well. $39 million this week. It's at $126 million worldwide. It's not even close to done. It only cost $30 million to make. And the original made $144 million. So this is going to blow past that one. Saw 10 is still going strong, $18 million this week, with, of course, Halloween for It and The Exorcist and the other scary movies to look forward to, like The Nun 2. Saw 10 made $18 million. It's at $71 million and counting. The creator, the sci-fi film, Natalie, sounds visually interesting. That made $17 million, and that's at $80 million worldwide. Denzel is still chugging along with Equalizer 3, another $10 million. That's at $177 million worldwide. It's the third in a series. It cost about $70 million to make, so it's going to be just fine. It may not get to $210 million, but you can consider that a solid success story. Maybe not enough to rush out Equalizer 4, but enough for everybody to be happy. The Nun 2 is very happy, uh, $257 million worldwide. Then we come to a movie in China, Under the Light, the Yimu Zhang crime drama. That made $7 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. And therein lies a tale. All the films in China, Under the Light, The Volunteers to the War, which made $6 million, Moscow Mission, which wasn't so high up, but that made $6 million, The X-Files 4, that made $5 million, and... Uh, well, Lose to Win, that sports comedy that we have had an American remake of, that made $4 million. Uh, all these movies dropped very hard. It was like they had a big holiday weekend, and then there was like a memo that said, everybody go back to work. I mean, some of these movies fell 60, 70, even more percent from their last week take. It was pretty like, all right, we're done. None of them have had long legs from, from where they were last week, but they've already made some good money. I mean, Under the Lights at $150 million. The first in that war trilogy, The Volunteers to the War, that's at $86 million. The action comedy with Andy Lau, Moscow Mission, is at $70 million. I don't know the budget. And presumably, the low-budgeted X-Files 4 marriage plan, that's at $114 million. Uh, so only the sports comedy, Lose to Win, that's at $22 million. It had a good hold, but it's obviously not going to make huge money, but it probably didn't cost that much to make. But somebody in China said, all right, enough movies. People get back to work. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, in India, however, movies are chugging along just nicely. We have Fukri 3. Fukri 3? I'm probably saying this in a way I shouldn't. It's a Hindi comedy that made about $4 million this week, and that's now at $13 million worldwide. And there was a new movie that opened. It's Mission Raniganj, which uh, is about rescuing minors who were trapped in 1989. It's based on a true story. It's also an Indian Hindi film, and that opened to a modest $3 million, but it only cost $6 million to make. And then there's Jawan, the, one of the big hits of the year. That just hit $140 million worldwide. And uh, Taylor Swift is not the only cool chick. There's also Barbie. We don't want to forget about Barbie and Oppenheimer, forever linked in movie history. Barbie is at $1,438,000,000 
And Oppenheimer is chugging along $942 million and needs $58 million and needs a big reissue come Oscar time to get it over the top. Will it do it? Maybe not. We said it would, or at least I said it would, but we'll have to see. And uh, Trolls Band Together, the third in a troll movie trilogy, opened up very limited territories out in Scandinavia, I believe. Just $1.3 million, but... You know, there's there's a long ways to go. It's going to open up in a lot of new territories, but it did just sneak out there. And of course, Stop Making Sense, $700,000 this week. Very excited to see that. Uh, I've sent people to it and they've loved it. So once you've seen Taylor Swift, oh, was it you? Was it you who said who said that about the Taylor Swift movie versus Stop Making Sense? No, I didn't say anything. No, uh, it was, oh, my friend Amy. My friend Amy said, her daughter said that uh, Taylor Swift, the heiress tour, is 1,000 times better than Stop Making Sense. <laughs> she likes Stop Making Sense, but she saw Taylor Swift and no, that was it. And Hocus Pocus is trying to uh, make some money for Halloween. It's at $3.3 million worldwide. We'll have to see if it uh, catches a little bit of fire as Halloween gets closer. Of course, it's been widely seen on home video. But if people like going to the movies and like seeing flicks, you know, that's the time to do it. You know, think about the difference in production that you have between Stop Making Sense, where they had to do it on film, where they had to change the magazine every at least every five to ten minutes, as opposed to shooting the Eras Tour, where they had steady cams and they could you know shoot indefinitely because it was all being done on digital video or digital cinema. It's a huge difference. Yeah. Well, technology and plus forty years. Yeah, well. <laughs> so it's that's a long time, but it seems like the strikes have been going on for a long time. The actor strike continues. SAG after was talking with the studios, and there was some uh, event that NBCU's Donna Langley attended uh, when talks were still sort of you know happening. It was actually quite me- quite phenomenal because she was at the Bloomberg Screen Time event on Wednesday night instead of being at the premiere of the Taylor Swift movie. Uh, and she had just obviously come from the negotiations, which she knew had broken down. And it had. But no, she said, she said, smartly, look, we're all ready to work together. The studios and the streamers are ready to work together as long as necessary to get a deal. And I thought, all right, well, that's smart. They're saying the right things. They're not leaking information. And they're just saying, well, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Apparently they have not had uh, PR lessons because they immediately then break off the talks, diss the actors for not taking the deal that the other guilds took and uh, yell at them and said they walked away from the table. Right. <laughs> and and they, they literally are. It's like, do you did you not learn your lesson with the writers? You did the same exact thing. You published what your offer was and then you walked Wait, away. waiting, waiting for everyone to say, wow, what a great deal. Right. You guys are so nice. <laughs> and then you walked away for a month and you then argued with the WGA over whose turn it was to counter who. And that didn't work. If anything, it only solidified the writers. You're doing the same thing here. And guess what? Instantly, it only solidified the actors. So you don't think Donna, you thought Donna Langley was lying or like- No, no, she, no, not that she, she was lying because it had not been made public yet is what she was kind of telegraphing was, look, we're walking away, but we will continue to- No, work. well, I read that quote and it, sound, it was not walking away. It's like, we are talking. We are absolutely together working and oh, talking. Oh, yeah, no, that, that is committed. That is true. We're committed she to did. staying at the table. And then two minutes later, the AMPTP releases a statement that makes her look foolish. Yeah, that is and, true. And, 
Yeah, no, I thought I was like, what? Like you just had one of the people saying, we are committed to staying at the table until we walk away. (laughs) (laughs) It was, um, and the AMPTP said, why didn't they take the same deal? The DGA took a deal. The WGA did a deal. We're like, yeah, but the WGA didn't take the DGA deal either. They stayed out on strike. Like, what are you talking about? Well, and, and then they, you, you had uh, Ted Sarandos the very next morning at the uh, same conference, okay? Uh, uh-huh. And he showed up and he basically said, uh, look, uh, he said a couple things that uh, were kind of newsworthy. One, he said that what really killed the negotiations was the actors coming back and putting a quote-unquote levy on every subscriber. You know, they're trying to get some kind of rev share thing going. And they said, well, you didn't like us saying we want 2% of revenue. So what if we just said we want like a like a, a certain amount per subscriber? For every subscriber, right. And, and he's like, that's outrageous. <laughs> it's like, well, why? They had an offer. And you're like, no, no, we can't do that. We're like, well, what about this? And he goes, oh my God, we have to leave. <laughs> but that's the way you negotiate. We, we, now, we, that, need, we need the smelling salts. That said, I mean, he did say something interesting that I don't think a lot of people picked up on. He said, they want a per subscriber levy without it being tied to whether there's any money being made on that subscriber. So what is he referring to there? Some of the worldwide territories where Netflix doesn't make any money per subscriber and they've just, they're there grabbing market share. I get it. But he also said, you know, we are committed to a success based uh, rev share and and then of course was asked about But like, you're not when you're not when you leave what, the negotiating table and say their suggestion is so outrageous you have to leave. It's untenable. Like you are shocked, your conscience is shocked by what they have. Well, asked he was also for. talking about the writers. Uh, and of course he was then asked, Well, how do we know? Like there's no transparency. And he said, Look, that is obviously coming. We're getting into advertising. The advertisers will want that kind of transparency. So it's just a matter of time before that transparency shows up. That's one of the first times I've ever heard him actually admit, hey, at some point, it's going to be out of our hands. We'll have to have a third party come in and audit this. Sperling, you're supposed to mock these people. Otherwise, you won't get invited to the premieres. Oh, that's true. Ted Sarandos, what are, yeah, give us he, our numbers. He said, dear God, a deal with sag After would cost four or five times more than our deal with the writers. Well, apparently, we just discovered there are a lot more actors than writers. Yeah, well, and we all knew that. It's like, did you not just, hear? Like, no, yeah. we all knew that. They were asking for 16 per, a 16% raise, whereas the writers were only asking for like... A, a, no, 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 it doesn't matter what they're asking for. It's like, there's a lot more of them. It's, this was news to him. Of course, it's going to cost more. They're, the guild is five times as big. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more actors than writers. He also said, the goal here is to get people back to work. Uh, yes, but you walked away from the table. So that's clearly not your goal. Your goal, if you walk away from the table, is to break them and make them come back to work on your terms. Here's the thing. <laughs> uh, and I, I thought it was very interesting to hear this said by an actor. They said, look, you know, the people that are out here walking the picket line, they're not A-list actors. Okay. Right. Uh, well, they are. You know, the A-list actors show up all the no, time. No, I guess. I guess what they were saying is the people that were fighting for it with this strike, the A-list well, actors. Well, that's different. Yeah, they have yeah. their representatives to fight for the millions of dollars that they will get. The people that are right. that that the guild is fighting for are the people that already have a second job to to support right. their acting. Yeah, so guess no, what? No, French, right, French. Our second job became our main job, and now right, this we're 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 picketing as a, our second job. So right, but we, we, that, that's obviously obviously true. The Writers Guild—they're not fighting for you know Ryan Murphy. No, 
and Shonda Rhimes, they're fighting for the writers trying to just get by. The studios were annoyed by Fran Drescher. They say she's grandstanding and not serious about making a deal. Meanwhile, she's sitting at the table ready to talk. And again, Fran Drescher doesn't need a deal. She's got all the money in the world. And she I, is fighting I, for I the people I actually think she's been quiet for the most part. Yeah. Until yeah. recently. Until this last bit. Then she kind of- Well, they walked away. Yeah. They walked away from the table. Yeah. yeah, there was no leaking on either side. It looked like they were disciplined. Donna Langley said something positive. And they're like, ah, screw you. <laughs> and they're back to their old thing. Oh, well, uh, the, uh, the actors, again, also point out that the studios claim they've made progress on consent when it comes to AI, but they haven't. It's like you're a background nobody. You show up on a set. They're going to give you consent by making you sign a form the first day you show on the set. And then they're going to have the rights to your image for forever and eternity on anything they want. <laughs> you know, that's not consent. No, and now, it's, it should be that uh, you have to give permission every time they use it, which would be a way to actually say, we gave you consent to scan us, but you still have to come th- and, and ask us for permission. Well, they also they don't want to scan 10 people and then you're done. You've got all the background actors you ever need throughout history. Right. You know, that's the concern, obviously. Uh, it's the first time a lot of people get on the set. And what was it? A third of all the actors in the Actor Guild are background actors in any given year. You know, this is not something that only a tiny percentage do. This is something that that's where they all get their start. And that's where they all often make a little buck. Well, and that's how they get their SAG card. Yeah. Yeah. It's- well, no, you don't get your SAG card unless you have a line. Correct. Well, uh, sorry, yeah, I should say, I, I should a- rephrase that. You're, uh, you're yes. there as background, and often they'll say, okay, we need you to come and say X. Uh, and then that background Not actor- often. W- yeah, yeah. Gets, yeah, that lucky one, yeah, yeah out of 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, the AMPTP, what does it stand for? The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. I have a feeling Wait. I know where you're going with this. The producers are saying, gosh, darn it, you don't represent us, which I've always wondered why they called it producers, because a producer is a person that is out there Producing, not a production company. Like it's a lower P. It's yes. like they're motion picture and television producers. Right. <laughs> they they make the stuff. Yeah. So the PGA is saying, which apparently is not a union and doesn't represent them, and they don't have a union, which I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know why they don't. I guess because I they think they're, they're the boss. You know. Yeah. They're sort of they the boss of each individual. They're product. the ones doing the hiring. So technically, right. Except. Yeah, they still need a union. Uh, so the AMPTP should just be the AMPTS, the Amer- Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Streamers or Studios, or AMPTC, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Companies, you know. Now, uh, one of the things that the writers and the directors and others have talked about is that the AMPTP is at loggerheads with itself. You've got tech companies, you've got pure streamers, and you've got studios, and they all have different game plans, different goals, and they have different requirements. And some people say, you should just break it up. Well, Barry Diller was saying that. We've talked about this. But I'm not sure I follow the logic. I I don't follow the logic anymore, and here's why. Uh, Originally, that may have been true, but... AM, What's uh, originally mean? Like last week or uh, five no, years ago? No, before the Writers uh, Guild uh, struck their deal. But when, okay. when the CEOs got involved and Ted Sarando showed up, uh, you saw that Amazon did not, and you saw that Sony did not, and you saw that Apple did not. And they basically, those studios and those, those parties said, okay, you guys struck a deal with the WGA, we're, we're signing onto it. We agree. So in other words, 
Yes, they have different business models, but at least Amazon and Apple aren't holding a deal up because they are fighting for only their, their issues. And they may have different priorities, but the actors don't, and the writers don't, and the directors don't. So they're not going to give some wildly different royalty or deal to a streamer versus a studio versus a network versus, a, you know, they will adjust depending on the platform, but obviously the deals need to make sense for them. And it's going to be the same deal for everybody. Yeah. You know, they don't care whether you're Apple and you just really want to sell Apple phones. They are, have a TV show and you want to buy that TV show. So you're going to have to make a deal with them. So, you know, yeah, I just don't see the point. I think the only reason would be to isolate them if you wanted to. You make a deal with the pure studios and then those guys would feel pressure like Apple and Amazon to strike a deal because if they don't, they're going to be out in the cold where everybody else is back to work making TV shows and they got nothing. So it would only be to the advantage of the unions, I think. Yeah, well, and again, the, the uh, streamers did not stand in the way of a deal getting done. So, but they, but they, they, they did because we had how 140 plus days well, of strike. Why, why, are, why are they walking away? Not that they didn't walk away from deals before, but who's holding it up right now? Oh, I do, that I don't know. That right. So it could be the streamers. Well, it actually, it is Apple. the streamers. If 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 you listen to Ted Sarandos, right, it is the streamers yeah. because they're the ones saying, "Hey, uh, we're not going stay for stay away for stay away from my revenue." Yeah, which, by the way, given the fact that you also have Universal with its Peacock uh, at the table, you have Disney with its Disney Plus at the table, Warner Brothers, and and Warner Brothers with its you know uh, Max. So actually, NBC. It's only Sony that doesn't have a streamer, right? And they're not even at the table anymore. So, and and it's not that they're not at the table; it's that they're letting the others drive the deal and then they can sign off on it if they'd like, if they wish. Mm -hmm. Well, the DGA is feeling the heat. They made a deal. Then the WGA made a deal and the actors are still striking. And after the writers guild, clearly the writers think they got a great deal. I think from all the analysis that they did, we've got a link in our show notes to the LA times. They break down the WGA deal with little explanatory notes and some jokes about what's going on and what it means and what the repercussions are and how long they've been fighting for this or that or the other thing. So you can read that in our show notes, link to it and uh, see what you think. But the director's guild clearly was feeling a little heat and they put out a statement that nobody asked for saying our deal was awesome. You know, we had a great deal. <laughs> you know, you know that some of the directors are going, why the hell did we cave so soon? Or well, what's, look, what's the deal with our deal? You signed the deal first. You always knew that in patterned bargaining, the person who goes first often doesn't get the best deal. So you knew that going in. So that's why you had the writers go first, because you thought if they could, if they could put the pressure on the on the AMPTP that the they would come to you as the DJ and maybe give you a halfway decent deal so that the WGA took that deal. It didn't mm. work. So nope. there you go. Well, the Hollywood Reporter has a story saying about post strike Hollywood a little early since we still have the actors on oh, strike. Oh, I know, I saw the, that. Yeah. And we've had a number of stories, but they're looking at the big issues that are facing the industry. And the first one that they say is streaming sucks money. Or really, streaming sucks is what they say. Yeah. It's a bad business. Any, any doubt about that? Uh, it's, again, oh, as always, analog dollars for digital dimes. I, I don't know. I disagree necessarily. They're going to be adding in advertising. And I think it's a big initial outlay. But once they calm down and realize 
no, we don't need 800 shows for our streamer, just let you know that we can get by with less content. I think they'll start to balance it out once they get enough subscribers and they chill out on the on the amount of content they create and they figure out the right balance and you know maybe they realize more you know what it's okay if it plays on a cable channel or a network channel and then comes to my streaming device people will still be happy to binge on it on my streamer they won't feel cheated just because star trek wasn't an original series i mean they have lots of original star trek series on on paramount plus but you get my idea just because it played somewhere else doesn't mean they won't be happy to no, watch it but really what you're going to face uh, soon is the fact that Netflix will cost twenty dollars if you don't want it with ads. If you if you want it with ads, it'll cost. 10. Well, that's happen. That's happening. Yeah. yeah, but that's that. That's again. That's my argument that streaming video is not a lousy business. That once they raise their rates up from seven dollars for that introductory offer for Disney Plus to ten or twelve or fifteen, there will be fewer of them. But they, they raised the price forty percent just well, last it week. Started. It started so low. Yeah, well, that was part of the problem, but yes. And I guess that's part of this problem, that peak TV has peaked. Oh, God, yes. That's, yes. Fewer shows, but is this an issue or a problem? No. You know, this is not a problem. They've been making too many too many shows. Yeah, I, I, mean, I can't even watch half the shows they make, so I've given right. up trying. Right, and there are clearly shows that probably would have caught fire and done better in a less crazy world where you didn't keep missing out on the thing, you know, and now oh, moved on to the new stuff, you right. know. So, but this is a, we'll skip to this one for the last. AI battles are just beginning. True. Of course, no one knows what AI will do. The creators think studios should be on their side against AI because the studios shouldn't want their IP sucked up by AI either. But we need the courts to figure out what's legal and what can be copyrighted, and we need AI to settle down and see what it's capable of. And then, uh, now you don't want to wait until the, the genie's out of the bottle before you start thinking about the rules and guidelines, but it's pretty hard to find out what's happening until you can see what it actually can do. And of course, young people don't watch TV, do they? They're TikToking, they're YouTubing. People under 30 spend like two hours a day scrolling and watching short videos that doesn't even include video games. Wow, that means I'm young. <laughs> I do not stroll through you. My, I call it my friend John. Uh, I'm driving to Panera after I'm done with my mom at night in Birmingham, Alabama. I go to Panera to do a little work, work on my show notes for the next week, practice my intro. And uh, what's John? I'm like, what are you watching tonight? Oh, I'm just strolling through you. I'm like, no, don't stroll. I go, what are you watching right now? And he lists me the video. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, why are you watching that? And it's the algorithm threw it up. You know, he's a smart guy and he watches interesting stuff, but oh my God, like every once in a while, he's down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos and I think you're wasting your time. Well, and, and YouTube is getting very serious about advertising. Uh, uh -huh. Like every video now has an ad, every video and usually more than one and no, you can't yeah. skip them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've noticed that with movie trailers a lot. So is that a problem too? Uh, it's a problem if you're not making the short films, I guess. Yeah, true. You know, but if young people, but we've always been worried that young people would stop watching movies and TV shows. And yet here they are watching one piece on Netflix and going to see Taylor Swift. And finally, the one that perhaps is closest to your heart. One of the big issues, exhibitors, theaters are still endangered. A big chunk of moviegoers are not returning to the theaters. 
Some say studios have to release less stuff and become profitable and just accept it's going to be a smaller box office. Others say, no, if you build it, people will come. It's it's the latter. You know, they're basically saying people aren't coming. People aren't coming. I'm like, well, wait a second. So people are coming to the table. Yeah. (laughs) You're saying they're, they're not coming back in the same at the same rate as they did in 2019 when you released 20 movies and they're not coming back this year when you released 10 oh yeah no you released like 60 percent fewer movies guess what you only have 40 percent of the box office you know it's exactly like, come on it's uh, i'm not saying you need to make a you know trashy movies just to get people to come back but well that's what they've always done but i think <laughs> yeah well also i i think and Donna Langley said this in her her comments uh, at Bloomberg, which is, hey, uh, yeah, people have basically said we don't need the 15th iteration of Indiana Jones. And, you know, well, that's not that's not true. People watch sequels all the time and they will continue to watch sequels. It's just that they didn't make the right sequels. But yes, you need to have a full, robust schedule of big movies, medium movies and small movies. There will always be some surprises. Lots of sequels will make money. Look at the sequels on our chart today. Cheapo horror flicks mostly because of the time of year, but sequels make money. People have not gotten over sequels. Are they over superhero movies? No, they're just over a couple bad ones. Well, you know. and uh, I'm going to put a pin in, in the Exorcist comment that Don, Donna Langley made, uh, because I know we're talking about that later. Indeed we are. Um, but that, uh, that moves us on into streaming, I believe. Well, yeah, I don't know what that there's much to say here. Uh, other Well, there's uh, the, the Suits universe. I thought this was hilarious. Suits has, been, of course, been a crazy, wacky hit in streaming now that it jumped onto Netflix. It's also on uh, Peacock. And it just dropped from number one after 12 or 13 weeks in a row. It's now number two, the second most popular property in streaming as far as the ones that are measured by Nielsen. It's not every single company, but Suits... 1.9 billion minutes viewed this week. And finally, somebody said, hey, maybe we should make another Suits show. What do you think? So they're going to expand the Suits universe with a spinoff in the works from NBCU. It will not be the original folk. It'll be all new characters and a new locale like NCIS and CSI. I've got the perfect like, title. Yes. Casual Friday. <laughs> how many people fake being lawyers? That's what I want to know. How can they recreate? Uh, how can they recreate the premise of the show in another? Like, are there fake lawyers everywhere? I don't know. I just, but yes. So yes, sequels—they're not going anywhere. People will continue to make sequels because when you make a big amount of money, it's a big deal, and people want to cash in. But oh, well, first of all, yeah. I heard you say big deal there, but I have a an even better title for their spinoff. Oh, what ties? Suits and ties. Get it? <laughs> there you go. That's good. But you mentioned Big Deal, so it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop Hour weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and you tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, let's face it, this is a big deal. Microsoft is the new owner of the massive gaming company Activision Blizzard, which by the way, is you know two companies that merged together, Activision and Blizzard. <laughs> uh, their $69 billion purchase overcame the final roadblock from UK regulators. In order to get the green light, Microsoft agreed to transfer cloud gaming rights for current and new Activision titles to Ubisoft for the next 15 years. The UK was worried Microsoft would have a stranglehold on the increasingly important market for cloud-based gaming, which right now is like a 5% market share, but is growing. 
This means, by the way, that Microsoft will add blockbuster titles from Activision to its catalog. So in addition to their own hits like Halo and Starfield and Fable, Microsoft can now boast Activision champs such as, get this, Call of Duty, Guitar Hero, Tony Hawk, Candy Crush, World of Warcraft, oh no, I'm going to keep going, Diablo, Overwatch, and Hearthstone. Okay, that's just <laughs> some of them. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big problem. What a shame. <laughs> Bigger is not better for consumers, and it's not better for the industry as a whole. And why only 15 years? Like in 15 years, they're like, all right, <laughs> we wind up all deals that we've signed, uh, you know, and now we'll take them all back again. And then we'll own cloud computing, <laughs> cloud, cloud gaming, I guess. It's the largest deal ever in the video game industry. And uh, that's cool for them and the company that made it happen and gets a cut of the fee, but it's not cool for us. Well, but and a part of the cool reason it happened is because Activision was going through some managerial upheaval. And I think that uh, the board and everybody was like, look, you know, if we don't solve this by either an acquisition or a huge, basically changing management, we're, we're kind of screwed here. So that's, they, they took the offer. They took the buyout. No, I know, but it shouldn't be allowed. It's too big. They're too big. That's what I'm saying. But what is cool is that Sony released a controller, a gaming controller, that's more adaptable for gamers with disabilities. So all the gamers with disabilities who love to play, they've now got a really cool controller that's much more workable for whomever you are and however you play games. So that was cool to see. Well, the NFL, the National Football League, they're taking the Super Bowl to London. Blimey. Yeah. Okay. Not anytime soon and not for certain, but it's seriously considering having the Super Bowl take place in London. Um, here's the thing. Okay, people. London is five hours ahead of the United States where this <laughs> game is usually watched. So my question is, would they start the game at 10 p.m. London time or make it a much earlier affair in the U.S.? Details are still being worked out, but the league really does want to expand American football. You know, that game that is rarely played with the foot touching the ball. You know, it's called, <laughs> foot, I don't get Okay, they, they just said it's not impossible to do this in, in, in uh, the, but, the UK. But, and they usually want to reward cities with franchises, but they've already staged regular season games in London, Germany, and Mexico with Brazil and Australia next on their to-do list. So they can actually play a game in tomorrow. That's because if they <laughs> played in Australia, it would be played on a, you know, in, in advance. So big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop. I don't see it happening anytime soon. It seems crazy. Uh, unless, of course, London solves the problem by getting an NFL franchise and everybody has to fly to London to play games. That would be crazy. Which but, oh, the teams absolutely love doing, he said sarcastically. Yeah. <laughs> but the one thing that that would solve is your halftime show. Clearly, you would let Paul McCartney do it again. That's he right. did it in 2005 and you'd have to let Paul be the halftime show. Nobody else would measure up. It would be crazy. That's true. But I think it's, I think it's, I think it's dumb. As, oh, what movie is it? As somebody pointed out, the NFL has a day on the calendar that belongs to them. It's their day. Why would you ever want to mess with that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, Spotify, by the way, they announced a major push into audiobook streaming last week, as we talked about. Uh, they're adding 
150,000 titles to their offering of music and podcasts thanks to deals the company made with top publishers. We had a lot of questions. How much do authors get for the streaming, we asked last week. What's the rate per hour? How many times would an audiobook need to be streamed for an author to make the same amount of money they would earn from a digital sale. A lot, by the way. The answer is a lot. Um, <laughs> of course, audiobooks have been streamable via Amazon's Audible service for a while now, but we have the same questions about that platform as well. Apparently, we're not the only ones with these questions. The UK Society of Authors have questions, starting with, what the, or, you know what, <laughs> WTF, question mark, or if you really want to be polite about it, what the heck? Apparently, none of its authors or agents were in on the deal. Many authors found out about it when it was announced or someone told them their books were now on Spotify, free to stream for premium subscribers. The Society of Authors questions the legality of this since publishing contracts have barely covered the potential of streaming audiobooks on a subscription service like Spotify or Audible. And how much will they make, by the way, since... The switch to streaming has been devastating for songwriters and musical artists, if not necessarily record labels, by the way. The trade group fears the same will happen to authors. By the way, let me uh, take the, the kind it of... It will. Yeah, it will. I'm going to remove all the suspense. It will. Big deal or big whoop? I'd like to say it's a big deal. It's shocking that nobody knew about it and that they all found out about it when it happened. There were some U.S. authors quoted when the deal was announced here in the U.S., so clearly some people knew about it. Maybe this didn't bother with any other countries and didn't bother with the U.K. That's kind of stunning. Yeah, you I know. agree. Yes. And I'd like to think that that would matter, but I guess it probably doesn't. No. I mean, it sounds... And the there's a quote from uh, The Guardian from the, the head of uh, the Society of Authors, Nicola Solomon. She said, how will earnings from these streaming deals be calculated? How can we ensure that such deals do not compete with sales and that authors are fully remunerated? What will it mean for longer term earnings? What protections are publishers putting in place against piracy and unrestrained uses? What the bloody hell? Well, that last part was me, but you can see they've got a lot of questions. Well, and uh, to which I would say, um, hold on, I've got somebody here for you uh, who can answer all those questions. Uh, Ted Sarandos, please. Can you? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, these are the same questions. You're totally, you're totally getting invited to Netflix's next uh, in-movie debut. Yeah, exactly. Which I could, could, it'll be at home and I won't have to, <laughs> I won't have to leave <laughs> <look> the <at> house. <laughs> well, maybe you can go watch the next season of One Piece be filmed in Singapore. Yeah, who knows. Uh, yeah. Which would be uh, inside baseball? No, that, that. yeah, where where the one piece is filmed in Singapore, and they're worried about the summer season. That's when they can record the show. They can film them because the weather's bad for much of the year, and they really got lucky. So they really want to get the actor strike done so they can get back to work. That may delay the next season of One Piece uh, a year and a half or two years, and that's pretty inside baseball. Yes, that is. And by the way, speaking of which, here's another spinoff. Um, four suits, three piece, <laughs> three piece suits. Get it? Come on! I've got a yes, million fashion yeah. jokes today. Oh, you're the best. You're the best. Well, if it's time for inside baseball, then uh, you know I should tell people that's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly how they affect you. I'll tell you right now. Here's how this affects uh, the business. People uh, in the business are saying, Gerard Butler is still acting? What? Oh, I guess he is. What? I guess he He's is. He's a successful actor. What are you I'm talking kidding. about? I am kidding. Because today we're going to look at two franchises. He'll kick your ass. Oh, he will. <laughs> he, pro he probably doesn't even need to be in the room to do that. 
No. Uh, in the Gerard Butler franchise, dubbed uh, the Has Fallen series, by the way, Butler s- sued recently to get money he said he was owed. We don't know the terms, but we do know how well the three movies have done and what that says about how we dub movies a hit. Our second franchise is The Exorcist. It spawned five movies and a TV series when the rights were snapped up by Universal recently for $400 million. They then went off and made a big movie. Uh, Is it really worth that much, though? First, ask yourself this question. Do I own a theme park? Because if I Hmm. do, maybe it is. So here we Hmm. go. All right, Olympus has fallen. Uh, They settled their lawsuit. Uh, He and the companies behind his first film, Olympus Has Fallen, in the franchise, have reached an agreement on his lawsuit alleging they hid profits. Here's what we know. Uh, They settled the deal. We don't know the terms yet. But he claimed he was owed, like I think, like $10 million or something. Well, Olympus Has Fallen, the budget was estimated at about $70 million. It grossed $170 million worldwide. Now, when it came out, I think we probably said, I hope we said, that's probably a wash. It didn't triple its budget, which would be $210 million, but nobody's going to be losing their shirt. This movie will be profitable, but it's not a a big hit right out of the box. You can't say that because we expect a movie to triple its reported budget, all things being normal, a normal advertising budget, a normal movie budget, all that sort of stuff. Then we go, all right, we'll know a movie is a big, clear hit from box office alone if it triples its budget. But as we try to also say, that doesn't mean the movie's a flop if it doesn't do that. And this is a good example, right? I mean, it didn't triple its budget, but clearly it was okay. Now, we, we would have said, when all was said and done, surely the movie's going to make money. Right. Well, in fact, the people behind the movie insist the total worldwide revenue from the film that they've taken back is uh, $420,000. The fact that they (laughs) even admit they made money is shocking. Normally, they're like, we are so in the hole that we decided to make two additional movies to try and (laughs) make the money back. Right. So they only made $420,000. I think 100 and change from the North America and 300 and change from the rest of the world. They're like, sorry, Gerard, no money for you. And yet somehow, even though it was a flop, uh, they made two sequels. How does that happen? <laughs> yeah. So now they made sequels and they actually are hits right out of the box. London Has Fallen cost $60 million to make. It grossed $206 million worldwide. So it, it more than tripled its budget. Angel Has Fallen cost a modest $40 million to make. They brought the budget down every time. That's hard to do. It grossed $150 million worldwide. So that more than tripled its budget. So clearly... They wouldn't have made number two if number one was a flop. <laughs> Clearly, they saw money to be made. So how you turn around and tell Gerard, and some people will say, well, he should have just gotten more money in his upfront contract for the second film, right? Yes, that would be the like, way That's how it. it works. Right, but you do do that, but you also say, I was supposed to get a cut of the profits, and don't tell me that first film was a flop because we've made two sequels. So, no, I'm not buying it that it was a flop, but you decided to make more movies. That doesn't work. Well, also, I don't want to be screwed mind, over. Keep in mind that, like, the... Pay what there's the pay one window, there's broadcast rights, which are usually roughly about 25% of the box, the domestic box office gross. So, you know, it, it definitely made money. Yeah, oh, well, of course, of course, that uh, right. So, that moves us on to the Exorcist franchise, which, by the way, uh, when it was raised, uh, the Exorcist was raised uh, with Donna Langley at Bloomberg's Screen Time conference. She was like, uh, yeah, thanks for that. 
she she kind of admitted, yes, we paid four hundred million dollars and it wasn't a huge hit. Thanks, thanks for reminding me. Like well, she actually admitted it. I was like, wow, okay, that was fast. Well, that was bonkers at the time. So the franchise has been around for fifty years, and a few years ago, Universal bought apparently some rights to The Exorcist. They have the right to make three theatrical films. They also apparently have some theme park rights, but they don't seem to have. TV rights that wasn't mentioned that they could say maybe make a TV show. Well, here's here's the history of the franchise. They have five movies, and altogether they've grossed more than six hundred and twenty million dollars worldwide. Well, that's pretty good. But there's a catch: four hundred and forty million dollars came from the first film alone. Yeah, <laughs> Basically, well, you that's your hit. The novel came out in seventy one. The first movie came out in nineteen seventy three. Uh, one of the biggest hits of all time helped establish the blockbuster movie in the wide release along with The Godfather and then Jaws in terms of summer releases. Hugely important film. Then you had a sequel. They rushed out four years later. That was not a big success. It cost $14 million to make. It grossed $30 million compared to $440 million. The next one, that was probably a successful movie. That came out in 1990. That made $40 million, but it only cost $11 million to make. So it tripled its budget. I worked on that movie, they, actually. Really? Exorcist 3? Yeah. Were you proud? Uh, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, of the film, so I'm not a big fan of horror. So I was like, eh, you know. <laughs> but but the, it was a success. Yes, it was a success. And yet they waited 14 years to make another one. Then they really got into trouble. They spent $50 million on Exorcist at the beginning, and it only made $80 million. Then Blatty got involved, and he wanted to do Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. That was one year later. They had that big flop, and one year later, they spent $30 million on the movie, and it didn't really get released. $250,000 in theaters. They basically just dumped it. Because it was so bad or something. And now we have a new movie. It costs $30 million to make. This is 18 years later. And it's made $52 million worldwide. We still have Halloween to go. But it would struggle, I think, to get to $90 million. It seems to be mostly out of theaters. Maybe it will get lucky. And in the middle there, there was a TV show. The Exorcist, it ran for two seasons on Fox, just two seasons, just 20 episodes. Gina Davis was in the first 10 episodes, the first season. And that was it. So why did they pay $400 million for The Exorcist? It's barely been a successful franchise. What do they also get? They get to stream the movies on Peacock. Great. And theme parks. The Exorcist Believer, The Maze, is debuting at Universal's Halloween Horror Nights. So they have the rights to use the Exorcist franchise. They've created a maze. It's part of their extremely lucrative Halloween Horror Nights that they're doing at Universal, and Exorcist will be part of that. But that, I look at that and say, here's the thing. Your Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios theme parks always sell out. Okay, always because it's for a limited time. But you got to, but you got to keep them fresh and you got to keep them fun. You got to keep adding. Nobody's to it. You know, going. You can't do the same thing. Nobody's going because it, it, there's the Exorcist maze. Nobody's going for that. Right. So right. if why? if the movie had been a big hit and really clever and creative, maybe they would be. Yeah. Right. They didn't deliver on the movie. Yeah. So that looked like a bad deal at the start. It makes no sense when you look at the franchise. It's not a very good franchise. It's barely been. It's really not been successful except for that first film. One movie made money, but other than that, you're kind of looking at a, a wash if you get lucky. Certainly not a big box office success. A flop TV show and what? $400 million. You have to gross, you have to net $400 million just to break even. 
Yeah. You'd have to have a hit on the level of the first Exorcist movie just to break even. And when you look at the franchises in horror, Saul, uh, the Conjuring franchise and so on, they're very low budget. Even Halloween isn't that big a budget, is it? No, they're very, I mean, that's the whole thing with, uh, you know, Jason Blum and Blumhouse is like, let's make a movie for $10 million, which I'm not against, by the way. No, not at all. There's a there's a place for that, especially in horror. Right. But uh, Exorcist as a franchise, I won't say it's dead because it was never alive. Oh, I know what you're doing here. You want to talk about dead people because you're always seeing them just like that guy in that movie. Yes, this is fascinating. Piper Laurie died at 91. She was Emmy nominated nine times. She wow. was a three-time Oscar nominee. I did not recognize the, her career. She had a, a really interesting career. To jump to the fun stuff, she was uh, got an audition. She won a talent contest and got an audition when she was like a kid at nine. Uh, screen test at Warner Brothers didn't work. Then in high school, she got another screen test. That one clicked. And so she got a deal at Universal. Her first film, she played Ronald Reagan's daughter, and he deflowered her. Says she lost her virginity to future president Ronald Reagan. <laughs> That's interesting. But the movies were horrible. She did a Francis the Talking Mule movie, all this stuff. The studio saw her as an ingenue, as a starlet. They told the press that she bathed in milk and ate flowers for lunch just to maintain her luminous skin. And finally, she said, oh, God, please get me out of the. Do whatever you have to. I have to leave this deal. I have to get out of here. And she got out of her deal, fled to New York, and boom, immediately started doing great work. She did live TV with John Frankenheimer, Sidney Lumet. She did Days of Wine and Roses opposite Cliff Robertson, the original version of that. Hollywood said, we've made a mistake. And she was lured back with a great role in Paul Newman's film, The Hustler. A a very good movie, a lot of fun. She received her first of three Oscar nominations. Her career is on the way. And then she walked away from the business for 15 years to have children and raise a family. That's pretty cool, I think. That's amazing. And then when she came back, she picked up right where she left off. Oscar nomination for Brian De Palma's Carrie. Oscar nomination for Children of a Lesser God, where she played Marley Matlin's cooled mother. Uh, A cool Australian film called Tim, starring Mel Gibson, a very young and handsome Mel Gibson, where Piper Laurie made like Ronald Reagan and deflowered her younger co-star. Not deflowered, I shouldn't say that, but certainly had an affair with him. And this is cool. I didn't know this at all. Twin Peaks. She, of course, played the evil Catherine Martell in season one of Twin Peaks, and she died in a big fire at the lumber mill. Then oh, wow. David, yeah, Lynch called, yeah. David Lynch called her and said, I want you to come back to the show, but I want you to come back in disguise as a man. Any kind of man, whatever you want to do, but I want you in disguise as a man and we won't tell anyone. And she said, I want to come back as a Japanese man, because that seemed as far removed from her as possible. He said, okay. So she's Catherine Martell, disguised as a Japanese man, and they didn't tell anyone. They didn't tell the cast. They didn't tell the crew. They told them, this Japanese actor has come from Japan. He's only acted with Kurosawa. He's not used to television, so be polite, but keep your distance. (laughs) So Catherine Martell shows up in disguise as a Japanese man and is there on the set doing scenes, and people are like, just staying away from this Japanese and she said nobody knew except Peggy Lipton was like something's going on here (laughs) I don't know I don't know when she pulled off her wig or whatever but that's just so David Lynch that's just crazy And I spoke to our friend Jeff Boucher, who said, yes, Keith Giffen is a big deal. He's a comic book legend who died at the age of 70. 
He's known for a very sardonic sense of humor, something you'll find in a lot of his work, and he co-created characters like Lobo, Rocket Raccoon, and the James Ray's version of Blue Beetle, which has just been in movie theaters. Uh, he did all sorts of cool stuffs, um, but one thing he's best known for, perhaps, uh, along with the massively ambitious Legion of Superheroes series, it was a huge uh, galaxy-spanning work, he also did Justice League International. Right in the late 80s, when you had The Dark Knight and you had The Watchmen and comic books were grim and written for adults, Justice League International showed up and it was like a superhero workplace comedy. It was the office of superhero uh, comic books. Everybody was joking. Everybody was making fun of stuff. It was super subversive and crazy. And it was just nutty. And people ate it up because it was so different from everything else. And he's also famous for being involved in Batman's most well-known punch, a one-and-done knockout of the most annoying Green Lantern ever, Guy Gardner. We've got a link in our show notes to that story. It's really, really fun. And in case you're wondering, Giffen kept his sense of humor right up to the end. He wrote a goodbye note that his family posted on Facebook that said, I told them I was sick. Anything not to go to Comic-Con. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's awesome, I think. Also dying, Phyllis Coates, the first Lois Lane. You can read more about her in our show notes. And film exec John Tilly died at 75. Uh, cool guy. Really involved David Lynch's eraser hair, Derek Jarman Sebastian. Uh, he worked with Ben Barinholtz. And uh, that sort of set the tone for his entire career. He championed great artists he admired and worked with scrappy independent companies or units of larger companies. He was at United Artists Classics. He was at Strand Releasing. He released a bunch of films and championed Pedro Almodovar. His first eight films were shepherded to success in part by Tilly. He also worked with Jonathan Demme, Paul Morrissey, M. Night Shyamalan, Ken Loach, Greg Araki, Fatih Akin, among many others. If you're in that world, you knew John Tilly, who died at 75. And finally, Suzanne Summers. Yeah. Come and knock on our door. Three's Company. What do you think of first when you think of Suzanne Summers? A Three's Company, without a doubt. Right. And second? Uh, what, WKRP in Cincinnati, maybe? No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's Lonnie Anderson. Oh, that is Lonnie Anderson. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I was know. saying in the late 70s, you had to choose which blonde did you want, the dumb blonde of Suzanne Summers on Three's Company or the smart, above-it-all blonde of Lonnie Anderson. I was a Lonnie Anderson person, but she was good. The Thigh Master, you think of the Thigh Master. Oh, gosh, that's right. She made uh. a gazillion dollars off the Thigh Master. I mean, that's really a rough estimate, but about right. And the Butt Master. But the other thing I think of her about is... Big classic TV contract dispute. Oh, okay. You know, you think of Valerie Harper on the Hogan family. You think of, you think of uh, uh, David Caruso walking away like a fool from NYPD Blue. And I think of uh, Suzanne Summers throwing it down on Three's Company. She decided she was the star, pushed a bit by her husband. She was making 30000 an episode. It was a top five hit, 30000 an episode for a show that ran, you know, like 22 episodes a season. And she said, I want 150000 an episode and 10% of the profits. She did this at the end of the fourth season because after the fifth season, of course, you know, everything changes. They got to re-up your deal and give you more. And she wanted to use her leverage then. It didn't work. They reduced her to just a cameo in the fifth season. She just like literally called in on the phone to say, hey, guys, how are you doing? That was it. And then they fired her. But it infuriated her co-stars, Joyce DeWitt and John Ritter. They didn't speak to her for decades. Oh, wow. She didn't make up, she didn't make up with John Ritter until he was on his deathbed. And another decade after well, that. Well, deathbed, he died she, quite suddenly. 
John Ritter. She went, she went to the hospital where he was dying and was on his deathbed, and that's where they kissed and made up. Like, barely made it. And Joyce DeWitt, she finally went on a podcast or something that Joyce DeWitt does, and they, they buried, the, buried the hatchet. So uh, she had, but you know, she had Step by Step with Patrick Duffy, part of ABC's TGIF. She really had an interesting career. Sadly, just like um, Jenny McCarthy, she taught a junk medicine to fight cancer and other stuff. She had mil- tons of exercise books and memoirs, even a poetry book, uh, TV talk shows. Uh, she made her money, uh, but nothing, nothing ever topped Chrissy and Three's Company. That is true. And nothing will top this episode. Until next week, or the week after, when uh, we'll have the next episode. So, you see, you gotta make... Oh, right, there's no show next week. Yeah, well, you gotta make sure that you tune in uh, for our next show by by subscribing to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, (laughs) Microsoft Marketplace. I want to say Stitcher, but they're they're no longer around. So, Spotify. Uh, Anywhere they give podcasts away is usually where you can find us. So please do rate and review us. And any one of those aggregators that allows you to do so, it helps us out when you do that. You can find that information as well as links to all the stories we've discussed on today's episode on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us and contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. And I keep calling it Twitter. And when I, sh- I guess I, do I have to call it X? I guess I Yeah, you do. It's, that's the name. You call people by their name. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They have their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael G- they have a new song out. They have a new song out. They have a new album out. It's all coming out now. 11, 11, 11. It's just getting ready. Oh, that's good. So check out their new music. We've got a link on our website. Uh, they have a, uh, their new album is coming out soon. And um, there you go. Okay. Well, you have a website and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's FranchiseAddiction.com. When you need to break the addiction of franchises, admitting your problem is the first step. Contact us now. FranchiseAddiction.com. Well, if you, uh, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to MichaelGiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, or the week after, play nice. Play nice.